Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Parker Thompson and Dustin Dolganow, and we are here today to talk about scout programs. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Art. Dustin, why don't you start? What is a scout program? A scout program is typically programs set up by a venture fund to source deals. Um, in doing that, they, they employ kind of friends of the family or friends of their network to go out and do the sourcing and they let them take some of the funds capital to, to invest. And I think over time they've started to do more work in terms of connecting these folks and doing some education. And, you know, we've seen, seen progressions along those lines, but yeah, I, I think Sequoia was the first one to do it. And I, I believe it was back in kind of 2009 or 10 or something like that. Um, according to Wolf's wall street journal expose about it. Why don't you both give some some context for for Scout Why did they come into come into place? What are sort of some of these sort of under you know, philosophical underpinnings underlying them, and how how has the idea evolved over the last decade? Yeah, I mean, I think at this point there's various goals for these Scout programs. So as Sequoia started their program, I won't speculate as to their motivations, but I think when you talk more generally around um, what these firms are trying to do. They're typically Series A funds, and they're typically trying to build relationships, understand the market, and potentially get deal flow, although I think that one is probably overrated uh, or uh, overemphasized relative to just broadly understanding the market and building relationships with the people that are their scouts and are typically, or often their founders even. So I think the idea there is, hey, let's spend a little bit of money from our broader fund to build this goodwill, build these relationships, learn these, learn these things about the world that we wouldn't otherwise learn as a loss leader for our main vehicle. I think that's, that's an important aspect of it, right? Like these programs aren't necessarily uh, intended to make money themselves. Hopefully they don't lose money, but they're intended to be you know, part of this broader strategy of a larger fund. Yeah, I think that's right. It's interesting you mentioned loss leader. Talk about a little bit how that how that concept has evolved over time. Because maybe Sequoia was surprised to find out that you know some of their scouts invested in Uber and yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you wanted to, uh, I mean, it's worth saying that like if you wanted to ask the question, do these things work in terms of returns? Uber's the obvious example, right? A, a, a Sequoia scout put a little bit of money into Uber, and they obviously didn't do the Series A, so. That's uh, somewhat of a damning indictment of these programs in terms of generating um, deal flow if the goal is to capture the outliers. So I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I completely lost the question thinking about missing Uber. Um, <laughs> yeah, I did catch a stripe and, uh, and thumbtack. I'm not sure how much of that was related to Jason Calacanis or, or something. Oh. Yeah, you would ask about how these things evolved. Well, I, I think they've evolved. The economics have evolved. So I think the economics have generally gotten better as more firms are doing this. And with my understanding is that the initial Sequoia model, you had this little scout fund, but actually there were other people investing out of the same fund and you didn't know who they were. So it was an okay deal, but it wasn't a great deal. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have folks with, you know, 100% carry and you've got your own dedicated fund and they're much larger. So, you know, I think people are all who are doing this are trying to experiment and trying to figure out the best way to do it. And because it's a loss leader um, and because it's somewhat new, there's not one way of doing it. Yeah. So if, if Sequoia was era one, is era two AngelList? What's the evolution there? Yeah, I mean, I can speak to AngelList and maybe Dustin can speak a little bit to, you know, Maiden Lane and the work that he's done. I mean, people often confuse AngelList with a scout program uh, because these aren't normal, boring, old funds. But I think, uh, as we talked about, you know, these scout programs are you know, funded by people who aren't necessarily trying to make money off of them. And AngelList is very different than that, right? Like the um, investments are deal by deal. The quality is very high. You can't do any deal that you want, right? You're raising capital on the platform from LPs. And so I think people are very much trying to make money. And it's just an alternative venture model as opposed to a scout model. So it's not Angel. 
it's not scouts, it's not VC, it's this other thing in the ecosystem that enables people like Dustin or myself or, or you prior to Village to go out there and raise capital for deals where you have access. So it's taking advantage of that access that you might have and to some extent your judgment and putting LP capital that wouldn't otherwise be able to get into those deals in. So the AngelList belief, our belief is that you know we can generate venture scale returns here. And if we're not doing that, we should just shut down and go home. So I, I bristle at the idea that you know we would be compared to a scout program, but no, I understand. Yeah, I, I think what AngelList's ultimate goal is to to build a marketplace or to move the marketplace online, um, which you know makes it incredibly ambitious and special in that regard. And you know, I had raised a fund in 2013 called Maiden Lane alongside my partner Jeff and alongside Naval. Um, that was that was called Maiden Lane, where the AngelList offices were at the time. Um, and that was the first fund to bring institutional capital to the platform. And, you know, as we started investing, we were blown away really by the number of people who had incredible access, the quality investments that they were bringing to the platform. And, you know, it, it quickly, I think, got, got bigger than we ever imagined it could be um, and has continued to grow since then. Along the way, you know, we started experimenting with different structures. As Parker mentioned, much of the deal flow is done on the deal-by-deal basis through what's called an SPV, a special purpose vehicle. Um, We also started tinkering with what we called angel funds, which basically said this angel investor takes this amount of money from these people and has the right to invest it. In most cases, they were part-time like many other scout peers. But what made it different is they weren't captive to one fund. Uh, Maiden Lane itself did have money from Accomplice, but the vast majority of it was institutional LPs. And we let them raise money from whoever they wanted. So it was, it was more collaborative. And in some ways, I would say it felt a little bit more professional because we certainly didn't and don't look at it as a loss leader. Um, we took it and I, the angels took it very seriously. And I think their performance to date reflects that. And so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of like misunderstanding and I think a little bit of FUD in the market. But I think what's happening is the market's evolving and, and innovating, for lack of a better word, relatively quickly as people realize that, you know, as Parker said, there's so much value in extending a firm's knowledge base beyond the four walls of the office and the brains of the people who kind of have voting power on that fund. Because if you think about it, there's like a ton of stuff going on in tech and, you know, those partners coverage can only extend, you know, whatever number the people are, it's usually a pretty small number, say five on average per fund times however many hours they can work in a day. And if you think about all the stuff going on in technology, you know, it's, it's a pretty, pretty big task to cover it. And so whether it's scout programs or other types of programs, I think everyone's trying to understand how can I see more of the market to make smarter decisions. And, and that's why you're seeing all this tinkering and, and to some degree an amount of misunderstanding because as Parker said, no one really knows. There is no playbook. Um, and no one really knows the final answer. And by the way, the final answer varies by the type of fund you run, maybe even by where you are in the world and, and so many other factors. So it's, I think it's great to see, you know, kind of like let a, different, a million different things bloom and, and let's see what works. Yeah, and maybe just to add a little bit to that, I think there is a reasonably set playbook for sort of the traditional VC, right? Series A, B, C. You've seen some changes at the, you know, the later stage into the market with SoftBank and whatnot. This is all the early stage of the market, right? Which really didn't exist 15 years ago at all. So seed is becoming more mature. Those funds are, you know, starting to look a little bit more like what Series A used to be. But we're all playing in this market that's new the way that maybe venture was, you know, 50 years ago, let's say. Could you imagine uh, something like later stage scouts or at that point, does it be just become like a venture partner or just a different, different thing? I mean, yeah, my, my opinion is the market is very efficient. I mean, you do have people raising SPVs to put into these later stage vehicles and they're basically saying, or these later stage rounds, and they're basically saying, hey, I can help you go to China or do X or do Y, right? Like they come in and say, give me you know, an allocation of $10 million. I'll go to Abu Dhabi. I'll get 10 million bucks. I'll put it in, my compensation is carry, and I'll help you with this thing that I can do. So you see that? That's not so much scouts, right? And I think that's always existed to some extent. 
I mean, if we're defining scouts as, hey, this is an initiative I engage in to help my core business, that doesn't make as much sense later stage. Um, You do have in the market things like the Andreessen partner model, where they have board partner model, where they have folks who aren't necessarily investing partners on the team, but take board seats for them. That's not really anything to do with scouts, right? But that's a way that they've scaled their ability to invest in these series A companies while maintaining a, a smaller set of core investment partners. Yeah, I think it's an interesting model, but I want to uh, double click on a few things we, we, we spoke about. So one is, I think one of the innovations that Angela slash Maiden Lane has, has brought and that we, we've tried to build upon is that the scout program or, or the idea of scouts is not just a way to extend the firm's resources and getting information, but can also be itself a strong investment vehicle as shown via the early Sequoia scout results. Dustin, would you say that's, that's accurate? Yeah. I mean, Sequoia's scout program is outperformed a majority of funds out there. Um, I think even when you remove Uber from folks I've spoken to, it it seems like they've also actually generated deal flow at the series a level. And those, those companies are doing quite well. So yeah, I, I don't think, I don't think of it as a loss leader. I doubt the firms do. I think that is how a lot of people look at it, partly because these people are part time, partly because it's a small amount of capital and typically the firms that have done it, you know, have done so well. I think they just kind of see it as, as play money. But I, again, I, I don't think there's, there's one way of looking at it. I think at Maiden Lane, we didn't set out to create a scout program that you you know, when we pitched it to LPs that those words weren't even in our, weren't even in our slides. You know, what we said is like, you know, at early stage, there's, there's more than one approach to building a business. And there's a lot of people out there who, who see the market beyond just seed funds. And so I think that's where the marketplace kind of started. And then obviously, as, as Parker can attest, now it's, it covers multiple stages, multiple geographies. I mean, you know, as you do when you build an online marketplace, it, it just it grows and grows and grows and has more coverage because of, because of the laws of software. And so, I, I, yeah, I agree. I, I think inside of it, there's a want and desire for, for ways to think outside of a 2 and 20 fund um, because of you know, the nature of a two and 20 fund because of the business model of a two and 20 fund. And, and frankly, how there's really, you know, only one or two kind of proven ways to make money inside of, of that type of vehicle. And, you know, and then I think a lot of people feel like those constraints feel not artificial, but somewhat misaligned with very early stage investing. And so I think that's where a lot of this innovation is focused and, and for good reason, you know, running a very, very small fund is uneconomical for everyone involved. Yeah, I mean, it's worth saying that, you know, the reason you're seeing all this innovation at the earlier stages relative to the later stages is it's super inefficient and relatively young, right? So you're going to find innovation where the market is super inefficient and relatively um, less where the market is is mature and efficient already, right? So, um, you know, Dustin and I are both thinking all day long about seed because that's where the action is. And that's um, also why you're seeing all this sort of experimentation with different scout models, because we're all just trying to figure out. And maybe it's possible that 10 years from now, the market will be very efficient and boring, and there'll be some other place we're <laughs> experimenting, but this is where the action is now. It, what was interesting about, about this is it, it sort of challenges a couple assumptions people have about VC, which is one that you need to be full-time to be, or early stage, because you need to be full-time to be, to be good at it. And two is, and is you know, more threatening to early stage VCs maybe, is that you need to have experience investing in order to you know, determine who's going to be the next great early stage investment. Well, I mean, the question is, how do you define good, right? Like what, what are the predictors of success at these various stages? And I think when you look at sort of post-product market fit, which is kind of where I see Series A today, and to some extent, some of these bigger seed funds, often the problem is, how do I win the deal? And sort of as the primary problem. And then, you know, how are you building network? How are you picking deals? Those things matter, right? But they matter relatively less once the market is proven out and and there's some data there. I think at the seed stage, pre-product market fit, it's super inefficient because those folks who have bigger funds can't scale down. So there's a lot of opening for folks who don't have big funds to do it. And then you're trying to evaluate people. Everything looks awful. So founders are taking 200 meetings. 
networks probably matter relatively more, right? You're like, okay, do, do, do I know smart people who are working in a space that matters? Let's give them some money. So I think the difference in how these markets operate really leads to this idea that someone with a good network with no investing experience could be better at seed relative to what how they might perform at, at A, where you actually want somebody full-time, you want somebody who can write a giant check, they can sit on your board and all the sorts of things that matter there that don't matter at seed. These are the reasons why you see, you know, maybe some angels having phenomenal portfolios doing this part-time or scouts doing, doing well. Yeah. Earlier you mentioned, Parker, that you don't want to speculate on behalf of the motives of, of Sequoia when they first started. I'm, I'm happy to speculate because <laughs> <laughs> we, all, we all learned so much from them. I, I think one is sort of have your cake and eat it too in terms of how do you get extra deal flow, extra sort of information without, you know, big concern at the time and maybe still today for some firm is without signaling risk. You know, so the idea that, you know, if Sequoia invests at the seed but doesn't at the A, is that a bad sign for the entrepreneur or in market when they're raising? So Scout allowed them to not have Sequoia on the cap table, but still give Sequoia access. And then also it allowed Sequoia to basically have a sort of a wide portfolio in practice, but a, a smaller portfolio in terms of, you know, the companies listed on their website so they could still have great statistics and, and be, be known as a very selective firm for their Series A. Yeah, I mean, I guess the reason I don't find that compelling is on the information side, you know, you spend your time where you spend your money. And that's why they didn't get Uber, right? They had this teeny little check in it. And I think when you look at how you generate returns from a venture fund, it really is a function of how much of your capital you're putting into these deals, right? So it's like, you put X percent of capital from a deal or from your fund into a deal, if that's, you know, 5% of your fund, you need 20x to return the fund. And that's really the mindset of these funds for good reason, right? That model works. And so I don't think that there's a model where these, the small percent that you're deploying into these scout funds is ever going to be a material return for you. I don't know, we could ask some folks at Sequoia and really see how they've done. I think to Dustin's point, they're not necessarily losing money. And that's great. But if you're getting a 3x return on 1% of your capital, you've returned 3, you know, 3% of your fund with this initiative. Like You've got to justify the time that you're putting into this initiative some other way because it isn't financial returns that's going to get you. So I, I agree with that. However, they did just raise $180 million seed fund, which I believe- yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a, so that's a dedicated seed fund, and it's probably worth distinguishing between that, right? There's a reason why a dedicated seed fund is not competitive with a scout fund, right? Like, we're trying to make money with a seed fund, we're maybe trying to do something else with a scout fund. So, I mean, I think the fact that they've raised a seed fund is pretty interesting and worth sort of having a broader discussion about, right? Like, how do you think about multi-stage strategies within these larger firms? But I think that's distinct. I sort of associate their scout program much more with their Series A efforts than I would with the seed fund. It'd be interesting to see how they kind of structure those teams and work together there. When everyone thinks about scout programs, they look, because Sequoia launched it, they look to Sequoia. And when I think about how their scout program's designed, how they ran it, how it works, to me, it's a great solution to the problem they're solving. I, I don't think Sequoia has any issue with access. I think they can probably win about any deal that they want. I think they're focused on saying, look, we know we have access to almost anything. How do we maximize our opportunity set? And if you think about entrusting some of you know, the most ambitious and successful people in your network with a small amount of capital and then using their decision to make an investment in that person or in that company as part of your process, I think their scout programs, like one of the most masterful and brilliant moves that I've, that I've seen someone do in venture. And it's what makes Sequoia special. And when I talk to people about scout programs, I tell them you should probably stop copying Sequoia because we're not in the position that Sequoia is in and our problem set is different, right? And like when we set out to do mainland, it wasn't meant to be a scout program. We were actually trying to, you know, generate returns on, on those deals by themselves because we, we needed those returns. And I think that's also driving a lot of this innovation is people are figuring out they're like, well, like Parker said, we have this tiny check into this company. The information we got is actually not that useful. The scout doesn't even really, really care. They have a full-time job, oftentimes running a startup. So like, what are we getting out of this? And I hear this from GPs time and time and time again. And it's like, well, yeah, you're, you copied Sequoia's program, which 
in my opinion, was meant to just light up a board and to say, hey, we, we see a thousand opportunities. Which hundred should we pay special attention to? And if the original scouts like Drew Houston and Alad Gill, if they say, look, I think this entrepreneur is special, you better damn well believe they're going to give more attention to that opportunity and still miss some as they did with Uber. But you know, when you look at the pipeline and the data, like that program has outperformed on every measure, not just, I think, in delivering in their strategic objectives financially as well. It's, you know, it's, it's crushed it. And I think that's also why a lot of people have run into the market because they're realizing that there's, there's multiple layers of advantage if you run this right. But, you know, I don't think it's a good idea to just copy, copy what they did. I think you have to think about what you're doing as, as your fund and each, each fund is going to have a different different kind of problem set to solve. Yeah. I got my start into angel investing after quickly, you know, running out of my own money via, via scout investing over with a couple of firms over a multi-year period. One was, was, uh, was index, which was led by uh, Terrence Rohan, who's now starting a scout fund called otherwise, who I also consider like you guys, you know, sort of a pioneer uh, in this. And they did an amazing job with community as well as uh, social capital, who's also uh, run by Arjun Sethi also did a great job with, with community and, and scout selection. And I think the difference of, you know, doing uh, scout program at, at big funds like index and social capital is uh, a fewfold. And, and there's one is obviously they can do it as a, as a loss leader. And what we tried to do with village global is create sort of an independent, you know, network based fund that, that you know, scout wasn't this loss leader to something else, but it was, it was sort of the main thing. And the few lessons uh, we learned or, or, or wanted to do different was one, we want our, our quote unquote scouts, we call them network leaders to have skin in the game. So to be making investments alongside us, because you sometimes run into the free rider problem of, oh, free money, I'll do as, as many as possible. Two, we wanted the scouts when they made an investment to also be able to pitch the village platform. You know, when uh, scouts were pitching, Sequoia scouts were pitching entrepreneurs, I, I don't think they were saying, and you also get access to Alfred Lynn and all this, you know, amazing Sequoia, Sequoia partnerships. And then three, also just focus and, and giving resources to help the scouts and network leaders uh, get better as investors or get leverage to a network beyond beyond them. I'm curious with that, what are some lessons, perhaps Dustin, you learned from your maiden lane experience uh, and fund one that you guys applied to, to future funds and that you apply in the future? Yeah, I think the biggest lesson was we came in with, I think, a view of exclusivity around who had access. And we quickly learned that a lot of people have access and they may not be as branded or, or kind of like as well known through social media or blogging, but we were really, really impressed uh, just at how many people through just sheer will and hard work had, had good access who also referenced really well with founders. And, you know, over time, we also saw those people start to just make better decisions about both kind of the companies that they're investing in, you know, starting to understand how to negotiate and, and, and fight for better terms and things like that. So I think, you know, from 2014 to 2016, it was just like this whirlwind of, of acceleration. I would say the other thing we learned is <laughs> you can head out with the best of intentions around saying, okay, I want to get, you know, this kind of deal flow, you know, you define whatever it is. And in the reality, you know, no one has like a specific kind of deal flow. They have a network and from that network, which is heterogeneous, you get heterogeneous deal flow. And so I think it can be hard to craft like a strategy specifically around a person because you're sort of misaligned. Um, where it's like, well, I just want your very best, you know, first check deal flow, like where you're the, you know, within the first hundred K of, of, of investors into the company. And when you look at it, most people don't have, you know, 10 or 15 of the great opportunities like that in a year. They may have 10 or 15 really interesting opportunities. Some will be a little bit earlier. Some will be a little bit later. Some might not be in the United States. And so I think that was part of like the struggle at Maiden Lane was to be like, okay, we have an incredible amount of access. We're seeing amazing deals. How do we refine that into a business model and take a step forward, you know, as a platform? And I, I think, you know, Jeff and Evolve have done a great job in, in taking a step forward with Spearhead and making decisioning cleaner and clearer and, you know, moving more towards a person-based model. And it looks, it looks a lot more like a scout program for sure. But inside of that, I think, you know, we learned that, you know, the person closest to the company needs to have decision-making power at least very early on. I think that was one of the struggles we had, you know, with Maiden Lane on, on AngelList was oftentimes, you know, we would have these angel investors slamming their fists on the table to be like, we have to do this investment. And it was just hard for us 
having never met the team and, you know, having never dug into it to really kind of get excited about it and see it. And so I think that was, you know, a big driver behind thinking through, wow, okay, you know, how are decisions made? And they should probably be made differently depending on the stage. So the earlier you go, it's, it's more of a conviction-based decision-making process because, you know, like Parker said, every investment looks terrible at that point just because there's no traction, there's no business metrics to really tie to. And so, you know, I, I think what we're, what we're all seeing before our eyes is basically the redistribution of decision-making within venture. And people are starting to realize like, hey, maybe we shouldn't have a consensus-based decision-making process, you know, without kind of like real data to anchor to, um, which typically means, you know, post-product market fit. And so what would replace that? And, you know, I, I, think, I think that will be the lasting impact behind Maiden Lane and, and Spearhead to some degree is this idea that, you know, convic- conviction-based decision-making, you know, within certain parameters actually is a better, quote-unquote, product for, you know, the first maybe up to a million dollars raised. Um, and you can do a lot of work on the people making those investments to understand if they have the right access and judgment um, and, and skills to, to make a good investment. And, you know, you can kind of put some rules in place to avoid a lot of the gotchas of areas you actually don't want to invest and, and keep people away from kind of investing or being guilted to invest in their friends and things like that. You know, one thing we think a lot about, well, a couple of things, one is what makes a great, a great scout, but two sort of, or a great person for this, this type of role, but two even broader is if you're creating a portfolio for these types of investors, you need to think about a few different ways, you know, different archetypes. You could, you can make it all founders in the way that, that Spearhead has. You can make it sort of operators at, at connected companies like someone like Neve at, at Product Hunt. You can make it uh, domain experts, you know, people who are super green, super new, people who are experienced angel investors or former VCs. Uh, how you guys, or how did you guys at the time think about archetypes for what makes a great scout? And how do you create a portfolio? I mean, I think it depends on your goals. You know, if your goal is, if your goal is, for example, to build a network and you're not trying to make money directly on the capital, then you just want to find people with great networks who you really admire. And so it's smart to just say, hey, let's go to our portfolio and found these phenomenal, find these phenomenal founders because other founders are going to find them. I think the challenge that you know, folks like you at Village have, right? Or you guys are trying to make money on your fund. And so are we at, at AngelList. And, you know, good picking in that, that regard is I want something that actually has a, like a higher probability of failure than I might by default be comfortable with. I think that's generally a challenge in learning how to be a good investor. You're like, actually, like, I'm pretty happy with something with a 5% of being 100x if I can pick, you know, 20 or 30 of those, right? And that's just super unnatural if, to, to sort of operate in that mode. So I think getting alignment between the goals of the fund and the goals of the person who's making the decision and deploying the capital is really important there. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you, you guys will see in your portfolio that there are people who are really good at picking 3X companies and that's just really bad for your fund, right? So you're like, mm-hmm. hey, you made a lot of money that would have been a good venture return if that were our entire portfolio, but we're investing really early. Our failure rates are really high. And so we need to actively seek out higher risk, higher ceiling deals. And so that's how we think about it. For example, at Angelus, because we're trying to make money, right? It's like, um, we're okay with fairly high failure rates across a portfolio. We're looking for stuff with really high upside. And because it's deal by deal, LPs can, can seek out those deals. And in fact, there is a sort of a constituency of LPs who like to go later stage or like things that are a little bit less risk reward oriented towards early stage VC. So I think you've just got to really align the people making the decisions and, and the capital so that you end up with everybody happy at the end. Yeah, I, I think this idea, it's the right way to think about it is what is the right archetype? And I think Parker nailed it in watching all the angels that we did on AngelList, you know, Maiden Lane in our first fund, we worked with 150 angel investors, meaning we gave them capital and it is so rare to find someone who is truly risk seeking and who understands that, you know, we're going out and trying to source something that is a hundred to a thousand X. And it's really difficult to see that this early on. And, you know, a lot of what you're doing is sort of getting, getting out of your own way and also making sure that you're investing in the right markets that, that can scale to that ceiling. 
And I think as the market around scout funds matures, we're going to see just how rare it is to, to be able to grab someone because most people who take this money initially are happy to, you know, fast follow into a few, you know, seed deals that are relatively late and, you know, they feel good about the social proof around it, but are oftentimes not doing what by all measures they should be doing, which is championing something that the market doesn't quite understand yet and helping, you know, that founder and that company get through, get through the trough of sorrow, you know, into, into the spot of the market that everyone kind of missed. Right. And so I think you can talk about archetypes of domain experts and and all the different kinds, but I think as the market evolves based on everything we've seen, there's just not that many of these people who are truly risk seeking and um, you'll eventually see people start to set aside what feels comfortable, meaning, oh, okay, we back this person in our portfolio. We like them. I know that makes you feel great. But that has nothing to do with whether or not that person is really risk-seeking and going out and doing this work or even has the time to do it. I think you're going to see groups of people who want to double down on this start to you know, really look at psychological profiles and personality traits and like, what has this person done in their life to truly be risk-seeking? You know, since stepping back from from Maiden Lane and Accomplice, I think that's where I've been spending a lot of my time is trying to understand, you know, how how do you spot these folks? Because it is that rare. But I think when you when you can, you know, bring a group of those people together and they can they can invest early enough, there there is a business to be built there. And I think it is the most innovative and, and exciting part of the market for that reason because it's so strategic. Those people are at the very top of the funnel, right? They're there kind of when no one else is believing and, and that has a lot of downstream value and also happens to be a great business from a returns point of view. You know, one big question is how much money can scouts deploy? One is, you know, how big of a check do we feel comfortable letting, letting these scouts write? And then two is like, how much can the scale, how, how big can the fund be? And this is of course, assuming that it's an independent scout fund trying to, trying to make, you know, optimize for returns. Have you thought about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on a, a bunch of things. Uh, but let's say Village. Let's look at Village because that's interesting, right? You guys have this fund that's on the order of 50 million bucks. How big is it now? 100. 100? Yeah, congratulations, Mazel tov, you know? So you got 100 million bucks um, and you got to deploy it through the scouts. I mean, I think the bigger your check size is that sort of the naturally you move down downstream in the market, right? So if I've got you know, a couple million dollar fund, it's pretty easy for me to write day one checks and to write a 25k check, right? If that's what's left in a round. I have a lot of flexibility. I can play really early and that's that's going to be rational for me. I have some other, you know, advantages, right? I don't need as, as big returns to get my capital back, all these sorts of things. So if you got a hundred million bucks, how many deals are you guys planning to do from the fund? So around 150. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, basically right now we're exploring this model where, because we don't you know, trust our scouts to write you know, 500K checks or a million dollar checks, et cetera. Yeah, exactly, yeah. There's going to be a bunch of 100K checks, and then there's going to be a subset of those checks by which we, the team, are really excited about it and double down at that same you know, time for 500K. On top. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it's an interesting model. I mean... I think, you know, there's this concept of what I would call an and check versus an or check, which is to say, like, you know, if you want to write a 25k check, and I like you, you're kind of an and check, right? Like you can figure out a way to cram that into a pre-seed round, a seed round, maybe even a series A round, right? Like it usually works. And then as you scale up the fund, I mean, you guys, 150 deals is even a lot of deals, right? It's going to be challenging, challenging to manage that with your team and your time and whatnot. So there's a certain point at which you just kind of go like, you know what, like to make a hundred million bucks into 300 million bucks, we need to be writing bigger checks. And, you know, if you're a scout and your whole thing is, Hey man, you like me and I know you let me put a little money in. That's great. But you know, the folks writing million dollar checks actually then take their management fees and their time and do a bunch of stuff for you. And so if you've got a scout trying to write a million dollar check against someone who's a professional VC writing a million dollar check, that might be or, right? Like you've got to take one or the other. And so I think that's where it gets a lot harder, right? As you scale these checks up and particularly within the context of the round, right? When you want to tech, take you know more than say 10 or 20% of the round, you are really you really need to come with a different value proposition and many of the folks this the scout model by default is not designed to 
do a bunch of stuff for you. So I think there is probably a limit to what you can do there, but there's also ways that you could potentially innovate there as well. So like you could, for example, say like, great, well, the scout will bring the deal and then we'll sell our network, which is what you guys are doing. And I think other people have been doing different stuff with that. At AngelList, our solve for this is to say, look, like I call it the 1099 VC economy, right? Like there's these people out there, they're bringing us allocations and deals. We don't ask what they, I mean, we, we do talk with them, but like in principle, we're not saying like, hey, how did you get this? What was your value proposition? It's sort of proof by existence, right? If you bring us an allocation in a good round, we're going to be able to put that in front of a marketplace of LPs. And, and generally speaking, those deals are going to attract capital. So really the people who are successful on AngelList at like small scale are people who are just good at hustling, right? You go out there, you get little allocations. The people who are really successful at scaling their business on top of AngelList, and there are definitely people who effectively run their business on AngelList. It's how they, they use the platform and they built the business for themselves as I think of them as VCs, right? It's a little bit different model. Those are folks who have said, hey, I have this um, you know, conference that I run that's the biggest conference for these sorts of people and then I can help companies with recruiting or they've scaled it to an extent where they're like, look, I'm going to help you raise your series A because I know all of the series ABCs and this is my track record. So they're going to these people and saying, I can justify a larger allocation because I'm going to do a bunch of stuff for you. And at least traditionally, the way that, you know, we've thought about scouts is these are founders of companies who have been successful. So they have good networks and they're very attractive in terms of you want them to be involved in your company, but they're actually busy running their own company. So they're not going to do all of these things that someone who's really trying to be more of a pure, you know, service industry oriented VC is doing. So I, I think that that's the natural upper bound on this thing is when you start competing against people who are doing this one thing professionally, you have to figure out a way of, of having a competitive product with them. And that's actually not easy because as much as we like to bag on VCs, you know, a lot of them are pretty good, pretty smart people who can be pretty helpful. So that's the, that's a competitive set. Yeah. I think of it slightly differently in that I think the, the amount of capital someone can deploy is a function of the markets they're deploying it in their experience as an investor, and then sort of their available time and energy, you know, to do the work. Um, and I, I think, People who are running companies, especially earlier on in the company's life, are just going to, they should be struggling to have enough time and focus, you know, to be writing larger checks because they have a going concern um, as their day job. And, and so those folks seem to be able to write, you know, 50, maybe 100K checks. I think, you know, if someone's more full-time-ish in terms of both their time and focus and they have more experience, they can quickly get up to writing you know, 100 to 250 K checks. And then, you know, we've seen on AngelList people who like Parker said are running real businesses and moving in some cases, seven figure allocations, obviously in later stage rounds and things of that nature, but they're finding a way to be value add and, and really treating it, you know, treating it as, as a full-time job. You know, I, I think, and my hope is that, you know, everyone kind of treats, you know, treats the capital with some level of fiduciary responsibility so that, you know, a, we can continue, you know, doing scouts and B, the returns kind of maintain themselves and, and people make, make good decisions. But it, there, isn't, there isn't one answer. And I think, you know, underlying it, there's also a question of, you know, what you're solving for. Clearly, AngelList is solving for creating a marketplace. And so, you know, they, they want as many different, um, they want access to as many different great deals as possible. You know, I, I think if, if you're a, f a larger fund who's, you know, running a scout program, you're like, look, we want access to series A investments. We don't want people, you know, investing beyond seed, or maybe they even want to invest in earlier than that. Um, and so again, there's a lot of different kind of levers to pull and incentives at play. But I think generally, the most promising area for scouts that can have an impact, you know, on the scouts themselves, on whoever's providing them capital and on founders is to be playing in that, you know, zero, raise up to 500k and being a champion for you know what right now looks like a, a weird opportunity right and that's where we can start to like dislodge um some of the ugly sides of consensus-based decision making right which i think are well talked about at this point you know well one way to do that is to to build a team of folks that 
you know, are diverse in thought and in preference and go out and kind of champion these, these opportunities. And, you know, I think if, if the ecosystem continues to put those people into the market, it's not only going to perform financially, but also hopefully help some of the better founders rise up, even though they may be overlooked initially. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe to put a numbers on it, I, yeah, the, my anecdotal evidence, I haven't actually run the numbers recently, but I think what you see on AngelList is people who are more, have a more scoutish approach to the market. I mean, it's not scouts, but sort of in the same ballpark tend to be, let's say, 10% of rounds, maybe a little bit more sometimes, right? Like you might write a 100 to 250K check in a round that's you know, a million to two million. So you're sort of seeing that at the seed stage. And then at the later stage, you're seeing it sort of bifurcate where you see some people who were able to do a ton of work for companies and take much bigger rounds. And you're seeing other folks who are really struggling to get any allocation because, you know, there's a series A fund leading the deal. And then there's a bunch of institutional seed investors who are going to get their pro rata. So you're sort of beyond that in the pecking order. But, you know, it's case by case, right? And so the people who are really getting large allocations and being meaningful participants in, you know, seed or series A rounds are people who are really trying to run more of a professional business. And they just happen to be using um, AngelList as their back end. And you could sort of think about those people as being a lot more like professional investors than part-time people or scouts or whatever you want to call them. Yeah, and sometimes those are the perfect, perfect people because... They treat it very seriously. They spend a lot of time on it and you're aligned with them and that you're both optimizing for returns. Yeah, well, these people all, I mean, we've been talking about talking about from this from the finance perspective, but if you look at it from the company perspective, all of these people are useful to the company just in different ways at different stages. So, you know, maybe really early, I'd love to have a bunch of 25K checks from a bunch of scouts who are just great founders and can help me and uh, in little ways as I'm trying to figure it out. And then, you know, you see the value in somebody who's going to sit on your board and help you really build the company. And, you know, as the company grows, your needs change. And so, you know, you're going to go to these various kinds of investors and say, hey, here, here are my problems at this stage. What can you do for me? And, you know, I think speaking for myself, I think I'm a lot less useful post Series A. I mean, there are some things I can do, but I, I probably have most of my value early. And so that's where I want to get my allocation and deploy my capital. And then if I can deploy capital later, hey, that's great. But probably there's going to be somebody who only does that, who's going to be better for the company at that stage. I'm curious if you guys, so let's say you're running a $20 million or $30 million, you know, scout fund or independent scout fund, something along the lines of what Maiden Lane was or, or Spearhead. How would you think about portfolio construction in terms of at seed and, and would you do follow on? If so, how would you think about follow on seed portfolio construction? We had an ongoing debate and I think it's going to take a while to, to really see the data play out about portfolio construction. And I think it's one of the most interesting and important debates to have. My sense is I'm, I'm sort of, I guess, in, in your camp as far as Village Global. I think, you know, if you're investing that early and taking a more network-based approach, you know, you're probably going to be, you know, in the 100 range, 100, 150. You know, Maiden Lane was, was about double that. And I think that was like a little spread for, for my taste. But, you know, as we look at the portfolio maturing and, and as companies kind of grow up and, and, and start to so, show some traction, we're learning about the pros and cons of each way of thinking. I guess separate from just the straight portfolio construction as a map to returns, I think portfolio construction as like uh, an indicator of like the type of business that you're running, you know, I, I also think it's just difficult to manage beyond a certain point, no matter how many resources you have or how much software you have. And so I think, you know, you can do better by founders and actually do better by your LPs by, by having those relationships just by keeping it, you know, somewhat smaller. So really just based on observation and gut at this point until we, we have data back and can be more scientific about it, I would say, you know, 100 sort of is, is you know, where my, where my head goes. And so you just back out kind of check size and thereafter. As far as follow-on investments, there's certainly a lot of desire from LPs to want the fund to, to follow on aggressively in the winners. I guess being realistic and, and taking a strategy of investing in 100 companies, it's going to be difficult to really follow on aggressively into the winners. And so the way I would think about it is almost bifurcating, you know, let follow on be an SPV and do your best to identify those winners and, and, and build a strategy and a business around an SPV approach so that if some LPs want to 
you know, back out, they can, but that, you know, you're, you're able to do more than, than you could um, within a, within kind of a traditional fund structure. That's how I think about it now. I think, you know, like I said, over time, the data will, will show us a better path forward. Yeah. I mean, I personally tend to think there's just a bunch of variables and you've got to figure out what, which you want to hold constant and then how you build a strategy around those variables. So, you know, one that's probably worth starting with is how are you generating an opportunity set that's interesting? Because you just like, you can't do more or you shouldn't do more deals than you have opportunities of things that could be, you know, 100 to 1000 X, right at the, at the stage that we're talking about. So you've got to, I think, start with, well, how many of those opportunities am I going to see if it's 10, even though 10 is probably theoretically from a math perspective, not a good portfolio size, right? You probably want more diversification. You don't want to add 10 more crappy companies, or you're just going to do worse, sort of definitionally, right? So I think what we've been talking about with you know, these various models, whether you're giving people dedicated funds or doing deal by deal or picking people with no experience or founders or professionals, right? Like these are all questions about how we're going to generate an opportunity set that's compelling. I think assuming that you've got a compelling opportunity set, then to Dustin's point, the question is like, well, okay, what's our reserve going to be? How are we going to make follow-on decisions? And I think we're you know, models like Village are, you know, going to have to work really hard. And we talked about this before you guys raised the fund is, you know, if you don't believe that you can make good follow on decisions, because for example, you don't meet with the companies, so you don't know the people, then it's irrelevant what the sort of the platonic ideal of a reserve strategy should be. Yours should be zero reserve because you're just going to deploy the follow on capital worse than you would the initial capital. And then there's a question of what the market is, right? So for example, I tend to think that, you know, the risk adjusted return on sort of the layup round, whatever you want to call it, the seed plus the bridge, whatever, like often these are actually really a lot better than the series A, just given the series A market. So, you know, I tend to think that you want to have a portfolio that's sort of in the, you know, let's say if you're going really early, like pre-seed probably like, 50 plus and seed probably, you know, you could get by with it a few less than that. And then like, I personally like to get greedy pre-series A. So I'd prefer to write my follow-on check if I'm going to write a follow-on check before the series A is done, because I think those funds have gotten big enough that it's hard for them to even, you know, get involved pre-product market fit, right? Like when I call my friends at series A funds, they're like, hey, this company looks cool but we can't afford to invest in the one that's not the winner. So we'd rather wait and see who's the unambiguous winner. And it's like, well, that's great, but I can't afford that because I don't have a billion dollar fund. So let me invest at pre-seed or seed. Let me invest if there's a second round at seed or seed plus and like, let me write two or three checks. And I know people who might write four checks before the series A ever happens. I, I think like there are a bunch of variables that you need to understand in the market. And then there's a question of what's your comparative advantage? Um, what do you want to be doing? Where do you want to be playing? And then you build a strategy for that. And so those numbers are probably, yeah, somewhere between, you know, 30 companies and 150 companies, depending on, you know, where you kind of land on all those variables. Yeah. I think the reason why we have follow on strategies are threefold. One is because it's a lot to ask a, a scout to do, you know, 500K or, 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 or a million. Two is because we hope that we can, in, yeah, in terms of how we get data on these companies, you know, thesis, your hypothesis yet to be really you know, tested at scale is can we leverage the network leader to help us get intel on the companies, especially if they're sort of professional investor type who themselves want to be doing follow on investing. And then three is, do we have an advantage over a regular firm in terms of our network, in terms of getting into the best deals? Because some of them at follow on are more obvious, perhaps, perhaps than others. Um, and so, it, as you said earlier, it's, it's an access game. And, and can we have yeah. a I mean, I think you guys, my, my editorial opinion is that you guys have a reasonable approach. You're not saying like, hey, Scout, go deploy this money and we're not going to even know the founders of the company. You're getting engaged. You're doing the job of a VC, right? Which is to get in there, understand the company, help the company. And I sort of think about it as like the way that you make money in follow-on is having much more longitudinal data than the person pricing the round. Because a lot of these rounds are overpriced, in my opinion, and the ones you want to do are the ones where you're like, oh my gosh, I'd pay 4x this thing, and the market just doesn't understand how 
great this thing is because those Series A folks that are pricing this deal have only met with this company a couple times and I've been watching them for two or three years. So um, I think that's the way that you make your money and follow on. And I think the more deals that you do, you know, the harder it is to get access because you haven't been there, but also the harder it is to have judgment because you don't have data. So I think that's the, that's attention, right? That's attention as you scale the size of the portfolio, which, you know, if you do the math, it can say like, hey, the, you know, if we want to maximize our probability of a good venture return, we should just keep doing more companies because the math tells us to. And it's like, well, that's just not the whole story. Right. You know, there's sort of a broader debate even outside of Scout Funds of not only portfolio size for diversification, but I think we're all on the higher volume side, although Dustin, feel free to <laughs> feel free to jump in if you're, if you're not. But the uh, is, is, is just follow on versus seed generally. And the idea is if you are doing you know, that many, that many companies, is it best to put in, let's say not in a scout fund, is it best to put all the money in up front versus follow on? Because, you know, if, if you leave some follow on, the theory is that you're just paying more later and, you know, the, the new data is already priced in by, by the market. What do you say to, to that idea broadly? I mean, the market is still relatively inefficient, right? So uh, I don't think it is necessarily priced in. I think the question is, you know, where do you think the prices are going to be? And do you think you're going to like, do you think risk is coming out of the business faster than prices are going up or the other way around? Right. And depending on whether it's one or the other, it's more rational to deploy your capital up front than, than later on. I mean, there are some other reasons, you know, in terms of company alignment and these sorts of things where you might feel better about just putting all your money in up front. But, you know, the question is like, well, are the series A folks, paying 4x what it's worth at Series A because they're actually thinking about a blended cost basis where they're deploying 100 million bucks at the Series B, in which case their strategy is rational for them and it's irrational for me to write a check in a rounded price? Or do I think actually they're trying to make their money on the A and I have more information and so I can write that check selectively into the A's that I want to do and, and make more money than them because I have more information? I mean, you just have to make decisions on what you think reality is and then build a strategy around that. I mean, I can tell you on a personal basis, I'm doing a very small number of deals a year just because I just, I find it hard to find that many great things. But when we look at this at AngelList, we just completely punt on this by building a strategy that says, look, we're going to look at each check in each round completely independent of all the other checks that we've written and make a decision at the time that we see the round based on the data that we have. And I think that gets confused for VC, but that's not, we're not, when we sort of sit there and make those decisions, that's not what a VC does, right? We're not meeting with the companies. We're looking at a bunch of signals that we think are predictive of, of outcomes and just trying to build a portfolio of checks that is relatively large. These portfolios are two to 300 companies. And when I speak about the AngelList run funds, and we think that can generate a good return, but it's just a strategy that happens to work in the market with our deal flow strategy, as opposed to one that would necessarily apply to Village or someone else. So for people out there who are listening and are saying, hey, this is all interesting inside VC baseball, but I just want to write checks. How do I become a scout? What, what advice would we, would we give them? The first thing I would say is, uh, as someone who was a scout is, you know, have a unfair advantage as to why you have a source of deal flow in the first place. Maybe it's because you work at a company like Product Hunt or Angel List or Mattermark or something that sort of sells to other startups or, or is involved with them. Or you have become a domain expert in a, in a, diff, in a specific category or you're at a company like Stripe or Palantir where all these great companies are, are coming out of and you sort of are active in the alumni chapter and can are the go-to person for when they, when they leave to start a company. And then is to develop a relationship with a, with a firm or set of firms where you're just regularly passing them, passing them companies or offering to diligence uh, certain companies on their behalf. Uh, and then, you know, if they have a scout program, uh, asking them, you know, asking them if you could be a part of it, or if not, uh, asking if you can help them set it up and you could be the sort of guinea pig for it. What other advice would you add or, or edit to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think maintain like a super high level of curiosity. And, you know, generally, I think what we have observed over the last few years in working on AngelList is, you know, the people that succeed are highly curious. They're not curious for curiosity's sake. They They want they want to win, so they have a competitive edge. And then I think also just consume as much as you can around 
trying to understand like what risk is, what risks you're taking and seek out that knowledge. Because like Parker said, it's such an unnatural thing to do uh, to purposely take on a lot of risk. We're not trained in any walk of life to do that on a regular basis. And so I think if you go in with eyes wide open and, and a high level of, of curiosity around how to figure that out, it, it's, it's a big help. And then just continually build, you know, build your own community of people that you're close with, that you're helpful with, and you know, that turn to you for advice or favors and things like that. And I think you eventually find yourself in a place where, where people are, are going to ask you to be a scout or in addition to taking the path that you suggested, which, which I think is, which is what I think is really smart. Yeah, I mean, I think I, what I would add to that is if you want to be an investor, you know, the best thing you can do is just go out there and find people who you think are working on interesting things and help them. So like you go and find some company that's getting started that you think has an opportunity to be big and you just say, hey, look, I think what you're doing is great. Can I help you? And like sometimes those things turn into advisory relationships. Sometimes they don't. But basically like if you go work with a portfolio of companies and just put in some sweat, there are going to be opportunities that come up and to, to, you know, sort of talk my own book for a second. You know, I always tell people, it's like, you know, AngelList isn't a panacea, right? Particularly when you're getting started, if you have no track record, it's very hard to bring a deal and just say, hey, I've got the startup. I believe in them. They've raised no money. Can I raise money on the platform? The answer is generally no. But a good way to start is to work with that company at that stage, get them to a point where they actually are positioned to raise a good institutional round. And you might not even actually be able to help them with that when you're getting started, but you're helping the company, you're understanding the business, you're providing value to them. There'll be a reference later. Maybe you're meeting some VCs in the process of helping this company grow. And at that point, you can call AngelList and say, hey, I've got an allocation in this company because I've been helpful to them. And you can often raise hundreds of thousands of dollars on the platform from LPs you've never met. And now you're a VC. You've got one deal in your portfolio and do that again and do that again. And pretty soon you have a track record and you've built a track record even without having a lot of your own capital. So um, I think AngelList is very different than a scout program. There's a little bit less autonomy. A lot of people don't make it because they don't put in the work. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not easy to get started, but people who are good at it find it to be a really productive platform to use. And, you know, you can make yourself a VC over time. So I'd really encourage people to, you know, get involved with companies. And, you know, if no VC is going to call you, I mean, often they're really looking to get, you know, get involved with founders of companies. So particularly if you're not a founder of company, you might have to find an alternative route. And my personal opinion is that, you know, just picking founders of companies doesn't necessarily give you the best pool of people who are good at picking companies. So I, I'd love to see more people really come and, you know, try to make this work on the AngelList platform if they truly are interested in, you know, building a track record. Totally. I think that's great. I think one, one other thing I'd say is a couple other benefits I've seen for people who have scout programs, there's sort of unintended or non-obvious benefits are one, I've seen one firm sort of use it as a sort of potential GP training or, not, or like vetting. It's, it's a great way for firms to get to get to know how someone is as an investor. So give them, give them a checkbook. And the other, and this is sort of uh, more non-obvious, is I've seen firms put someone as a scout, similar reason almost as why they put them as an EIR, which is to sort of get lo- you know, gain their loyalty for when they look to start a company that they'll you know, think of that firm first. And one scout program I was a part of actually had a sort of allocation almost set aside for when anyone in the company, you know, firm started a company, there would be a certain, you know, certain allocation so that they can raise their first, first money from that, from that firm, which I thought was an interesting approach. Mm-hmm. But maybe one question we'll, we'll close off of is, uh, you know, as you sort of look out at the future of VC and all of our firms are sort of, you know, thinking of thinking about that and making experiments on that, you know, five years out, 10 years out, you think of sort of democratization of, of the asset class, which is your angel, uh, angel S mingling, uh, and we're trying to contribute to, you guys have pioneered. What, what else, what, what have we not talked about that you expect to see uh, in terms of how, how angels play in the market, how they you know, play respective, in respect to LPs, how they play in respect to VC firms? What else do you, do you think that we should discuss as it relates to the future of venture capital? It's hard to know. I mean, I guess what I tend to believe is true is that we're seeing the further professionalization of the early stage. So we talk about angels, but really how many angels do you know, right? If an angel is someone who's investing their own money 
and not really considering it a serious business effort, right? Um, So I think scouts are part of the professionalization. It's professional capital trying to get access at the earlier, earlier stages. So I expect broadly, we'll just see a continuation of that trend and exactly how that plays out, whether that's, you know, village scaling to a billion dollar fund or, you know, angelist and sort of this, this more open economy or, you know, some third or fourth or fifth model. I don't know. I think actually probably it's just all of these things because there's so much opportunity. There's so much growth in tech, like for example, outside of the Bay area. So that changes things in a material way that we haven't really talked about much at all. If you need scouts in San Francisco, imagine what you get, like what changes when the market gets bigger than seven miles by seven miles. Right. So I think we'll see more experimentation, more, more diversity of models, much more professionalization and the industry is growing. So hopefully all of these things can work. Yeah. I think the two, two things I would hit on one would just be the macroeconomic environment. I think it's on everyone's mind right now. And I, I don't think we have to deep dive into everyone's sort of anxiety around where the market's going to go, but I do think it's going to be interesting to see, you know, is what we're seeing right now, is it, is it temporal? Meaning, are, is it because we're in this frothy market and you know, when the market switches, it'll go away? Or is it structural? I'm definitely in the camp that it's structural. I mean, I think you know, Parker probably is as well, given what we've seen at AngelList. I think it has legs and it's going to go well beyond you know, this cycle. But when the cycle switches, I do think we're going to see you know, who's really in it for the long haul. And, you know, it's going to stress test some of some of people's thinking around it and the models. And, and I think will be overall positive and helpful. But, you know, who knows? The second thing is, I think inside of all this, there's a question around specialization. And as technology, obviously, spreads into parts of our lives where it's never been before, goes into more regulated industries, gets more and more technical and scientific. And, and difficult to understand, you know, are we seeing the rise of the specialist? Is that, is that what's inside of, you know, these new models where people are going to have build businesses investing around, you know, very particular areas that, that do require high levels of context, domain expertise, you know, networks that are able to identify and recruit talent and things like that, you know, or is, is it, you know, kind of business as usual on the venture side, which I'd, I'd say is more of like a generalist model. And, and to what degree, like, does it swing in either direction? I think that's something I'm excited about and thinking about on kind of the 10 year horizon. Because if it is the case that the specialist kind of wins the day, because technology is, is kind of moving into a new chapter around the specificity and understanding you need to succeed as an investor, you know, I, I think the two and 20 kind of fund model is going to, is going to be, you know, tested in a lot of ways, especially at like the seed and series A stages, you know, later stage investors, I I think really do a lot more of their work around financial engineering and and are probably saved from that. But, you know, jockeying for position early on and understanding these markets, you know, it doesn't take long and sitting at AngelList to understand that it's like, I'm above my skis and in a large percentage of the stuff that I'm looking at. And I want to partner with someone who is, you know, more of a domain expert and better at seeing that space than I am because there's just only so many hours in the day and only so much you can know. But technology is going into so many spaces. And I, and I think that's, that's going to be exciting to, to observe, you know, at, you know, in the end of the 2020s. Totally. Any thoughts on algorithmic investing in the future as it relates to venture capital? I guess my, my opinion on that is the data early is very messy. Pre-product market fit, it's not obvious to me that the data tells you that much. And there may be ways in which it tells you the wrong thing, like let's go invest in people from Stanford CS because they have traditionally created returns. So it's, it's not obvious to me that algorithmic works early. Later on, I think it's actually probably easier in theory to make it work, but then there's a question of how do you get access to the data, right? So if the data that matters is confidential data within the company, that's not necessarily that useful. And I think we've seen we've seen initiatives like Mattermark, which you're probably aware of, that sort of started with that premise, right? That we're going to go be a data vendor for the venture industry. And I think in the end, what they found is that they were able to figure out 
after things were working, like, oh, hey, these people are hiring a lot of people. That's a signal that this company must be doing well. Or, oh, hey, they're trending in the app store. That's pretty interesting. But that's actually too late. So the algorithms don't get you the data at the time you would need to make a decision. And then I think there's a question of if you're using data at a stage where the problem isn't understanding the opportunity set, but getting access then it's moot anyway, right? Because they're like, hey, I know the right things to invest in, but they don't want me on their board. They want that person over there. So I think there are strategies like correlation ventures that are taking this specific approach. And uh, you, you'd have to talk to them about you know, what their uh, challenges are and, and sort of how they, they, they manage those things. But I think, I don't know, maybe I'm just lack imagination. I, t- I tend to think data is going to be interesting, but not, not a game changer here. 100% agreed. Yes. For a future podcast, equity investing in people before they start companies. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, terrible idea. We'll save yeah. it for another podcast, though. <laughs> awesome. Uh, thank you guys so much for coming to the podcast. It's been a great episode. Talk to you both soon. Yeah, good to speak with you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.